Man alive, it's time to get started again with the whole new year. Nobody's uh, taken over government buildings yet, so I think we're doing better than we did last year. We'll see how that plays out. So we're going to have a little fun. Starting off in this first episode, I'm going to answer some of the questions I got about my trip regarding actually things I do, equipment I use, advice for camping, hiking, whatever. Some of this will relate to preparedness. There'll be information here for everybody, whether you're just going to go out and do some light hiking for your afternoon, you like to do ultralight stuff, go out for a few days, long distances, carrying almost nothing. You're going to do maybe some tank camping, car camping, or maybe you're just going to straight up get an RV and rent it or live in it. The idea here is to cover some, I guess people would call them tips and tricks, but things people don't normally talk about. Most of this is things I've already known, but there are things I have learned. Things gearing everywhere from cooking to tools to cleaning to maintenance to sleeping equipment, to the clothing you have, dealing with weather and temperature and fun and all this other stuff. I'm going to address a bunch of that stuff, kind of help you out, and I think you'll probably enjoy it if you're into that subject. And that's what we're going to talk about right here on Gray Man, Hiding in Plain Sight. Well, I'm sure the audio already sounds different. I'm in a new location, so i got to figure this out. So hopefully we don't have such a big discrepancy next time. But first, we're going to look at uh, food, basically camp kitchen, stuff we need for that. What I'm going to talk about really is the types of equipment. Remember, though, when you go camping, it's all about having good food. It's not really what it's all about, but you want to have good food. So whether you're ultralight stuff and you're using dehydrated foods or you're you're preparing your own stuff, you want to make sure that you can have some of those good comfort items that you like to have and you can eat as well as you normally would. Biggest reason I want to mention this is most people, most of the time when they go do things like camping and hiking are more physically active than they are at home. They don't realize how many more calories they burn, how much more hungry they're going to be. So you want to have good appetizing food, things you like to eat, and a little bit more calories than you normally would. Now you can do whatever you want with that as far as your diet's concerned, but let's look at the equipment we're going to be using, starting with cookware. So before getting into the three most common types of metals that cooking stuff's made out of, I want to talk about cast iron. Obviously, if you don't know this, cast iron is way too heavy for the ultralight backpacker, but it's great to have if you have a vehicle. The upsides is it's super durable. They're actually very easy to take care of once you learn how. You just have to have some fats or oils. They're not difficult to clean, but they are super, super heavy. But the nice thing about them is they hold their heat well. So I can tell you that when I cook a lot, most of the stuff I cook in is in a cast iron pan because I'm driving around in an RV. So I don't worry about that weight. What I like about it is because it holds its heat so long and I like to eat outside, especially if it's really early or really late or it's a colder time of year, is I don't use, it's just me, so I don't use bowls and all that other stuff. I just roll over that cast iron. It just came off the heat. It holds the heat for a long time. I eat a lot of food at once because I don't eat all that often and it stays warm the entire time. And all I do is set it on a heating pad, which is important because whatever type of surface you're putting your pan on, You can lose some of that heat. It'll get sucked out of it. So some of the places I go have tables, but they might be concrete. So I definitely want to use some sort of hot pad. Not because I want to protect the concrete, but because I don't want the concrete sucking the heat right out of that pan while I'm eating my food. When it's a wooden picnic table, I don't care as much. But that's the upside to cast iron. But most people aren't going to be using that. Most people don't even own it. They're going to own one of the other three or buy one of the other three. Now, those other three are going to be stainless steel. They're going to be titanium or they're going to be aluminum. Specifically, it's probably going to be anodized aluminum. 
So some things we should know about that. Number one, stainless steel. Stainless steel is by far the cheapest. And that is by price, not quality. It's the cheapest. It's very lightweight. And stainless steel is very durable. It's the weakest of the three. If you were to damage or dent or smash, it would be the most likely one. However, in most situations for that to happen, something would have to happen like you drop a stainless steel water bottle off a hillside and go get it and it bounces off a bunch of rocks. It would get beat up and potentially punctured. Or you stepped on it or jumped on it. Like you almost have to go out of your way to try to damage some of this stuff. But it is the weakest, most likely to get damaged. Could they rust? Uh, Theoretically. It depends on the quality of the equipment made because if you get some of the bottles like I have, they don't really rust inside unless you leave something in there that will contaminate them other than water and you leave them in there for a very, very long time. It could start to damage them. Most of them have a kind of a protective coating. They're really great in the heat. In fact, when you look at people that buy like the water bottles and stuff or canteens that are stainless steel that you can put in a fire, they're single wall because you don't want to put double wall on there. Single wall, there's one wall and they heat up very quickly. They don't hold the heat that long. So they're really great in a lot of situations. But like if I was up super cold weather doing like Alpine stuff, I definitely myself, I wouldn't have stainless steel. But they heat up fairly quickly. They're not as strong, but they're very lightweight. They're also the cheapest. And for the single wall, double wall thing, double wall just means it has an extra wall with a gap inside that's insulated or is just air to help insulate whatever you put in there. Those you don't want to put in a fire, but you can put single wall in a fire. Next, we have anodized aluminum, which is very strong. It's a very strong item. Tend to be like when you buy pots, they tend to be a lot thicker and heavier, but they're much stronger than stainless steel. Things like the Kelly Kettle, some of the ones anodized aluminum, they're going to hold the heat slightly longer, not a whole bunch. They are going to cost a little more stainless steel, but not a lot. When you're looking at pots and pans, they're typically are going to be thicker, but if you're looking at little stoves, like the Esbit stove I have, which I'm going to put a links to a lot of the stuff I mentioned in the show notes, just to show you some of the stuff. Those anodized aluminum ones, some of those things that are little stoves, they're not that thick, but pots and pans are. So they have a little more weight to them and they'll cost you a little bit more, but they're super durable, super easy to clean. A lot of anodized aluminum, especially pots and pans are why they're metal because they have a protective coating. They're not Teflon, but they are safe to use metal tools on. You don't just have to use like a plastic spatula. So a little more versatile and durable, cost a little bit more, usually a little bit heavier, a lot heavier if it's pots and pans, not as much if it's a little stove or it's the little things. And they tend to be very easy to clean and tend to survive the longest if there was no maintenance done to them. They would probably survive the longest of all of these items. And by that, I mean without damage. Then we have titanium, by far the most expensive. In fact, astronomically expensive for a similar item compared to stainless steel or anodized aluminum. Titanium is by far the strongest pound for pound. But one of the things you'll find is that if you compare titanium, say anything compared to anodized aluminum, that titanium piece is going to be so much thinner. It's because they're so strong, but that also makes it extremely lightweight. In fact, far more lightweight than stainless steel. They also heat up quicker and depending on what you're using typically more evenly, and stainless steel, that pretty much though is irrelevant because if you're using, let's say, pot, for example, and you're going to heat up soup or, you know, you're going to cook up some ground beef in there before you add something in, you're thinking in a kitchen at home, he, even heating is a bigger deal. 
While the titanium one would tend to heat more evenly, that is mostly irrelevant because what's going to matter is the conditions. So when you're in a home, you just, you know, you have your stove, you turn it on, there's no environmental conditions. When you're camping, you have environmental conditions. Weather is a big one. You don't have a stable temperature. Depends on the time of year. If you've got wind, you got the type of stove you're using, how it's fueled, how much stuff's putting it out. That's going to have a far more bigger impact than you're ever going to realize with the metal itself. But super strong, super expensive, super lightweight. Probably the best thing you can get, especially if you're backpacking. So, for example, I'll put in this teapot I use that I got from, I think it's Keith something. It's perfect. Like, it's the one titanium teapot. and the pour spout on it. It's very simple. It works better than all the other ones. The amount of water it'll hold and boil for me if I want to boil or heat up will take my travel mug, which is for coffee or whatever. When I'm done with this, I can take the water. I can fill up the travel mug for coffee or tea. I can take the rest of the water. It will fill up the Contigo thermos I use that I'll use the rest of the day or in the following morning. So it heats up the exact amount I need. So that's what I liked about it too. But this little teapot was $100. Now you go buy a glass teapot, stainless steel teapot, even the cheaper ones. Some of those could be, you can find them still for 10 or 15 bucks or a little bit more. You buy those little round ones like we used to in Iraq for eating or drinking tea over there. They're fairly simple and lightweight but this for what it is is it's lightweight it's stronger it's going to last it's small enough i can use it for any of these situations but it was nice because even though it's only a few ounces i saved some weight because i carry enough weight around as it is now moving on from there when you're looking at stoves they do heat in btus british thermal units look those up but i'm gonna tell you right now unless you're in really high level alpine conditions or you're going to be at like below freezing or freezing temperatures stay away from anything that's doing like 50,000 BTU you'll never turn it up that high and you'll actually you could damage cheaper stuff like if you buy some of that GSI cheaper stuff you can damage it you can burn your food really easy I mean the upside is in super cold weather if you're using that to heat your water it'll do it quicker but again if you're using something like a titanium pot not as big of a deal so 30,000 is usually plenty. Some are less than that. Wind deflectors play in and all this other stuff. The other thing too is like with my teapot, most of the propane I use is to heat water. It heats water for my shower and it heats water for me to drink coffee and tea. That's typically it. I cook usually once a day. So the propane lasts me a very long time. Because of that, to be more efficient, one of the things to look at is let's say you just have a pot, you bring a pot out of your house, whatever it's made out of. And you're going to be heating water up most of the time, or even part of the time, for coffee, you're heating it up for tea, or you're heating it up for, say, one of those instant freeze-dried meals. Efficiency is everything, especially when you're doing this kind of thing. It's all about conservation of energy, whether it's your energy or some other form of energy. So, for example, you're going to walk and hike from point A to point B, and you want to conserve energy and be efficient. Well, if I take route number one, the distance on the map says it's one-third distance number two. But if you know how to read a map, you find out that the one-third distance on Route 1. As it's such a steep climb, you might be on your hands and feet half the time, whereas if you take the three times longer way around, it's relatively flat to walk around that hill. Sure, it's a longer distance, but you might actually get there quicker, but you definitely will burn less energy. I think about that with everything, including like propane. I think about it the way I build fires, depending on the wood I have, the conditions I have, how I'm starting the fire, what I want the fire to do. Like a lot of people have great stuff on the internet about building fires. But they don't explain to you the different types and why they're important, or maybe they don't know. But going back to water, the thing is, is if you're using a pot, 
make sure you have the lid for it, even if you can't see through it. Because just like cooking at home, when the lid's on there, it keeps a lot of that heat in there. It will boil faster or get to temperature faster, especially with food you're cooking, even a frying pan if you have a lid for that too. That gets temperature quicker, still cook or heat it up the right way, but you're going to use less fuel and that's going to save you money and be more important if you're stuck out somewhere and you're not sure how much fuel you have. So that's what I like too about a lot of these little cook set stoves. They're lightweight, like the Esbit one I'll have in the show notes. And it's got a little simple lid on it. It doesn't use a lot or weigh a lot. It's real lightweight, real simple. But if you're just pulling a pot out of your kitchen, you always want to have a lid. Best thing to do when it comes to kitchen tools is look at things you like to use every day. Now, maybe you don't want to take those items with you, but if you can afford to get a second one or something similar, do that. Or you can just take the cheaper stuff. A lot of those things are real minuscule and you just kind of figure them out how you go along. Like I use a lot of kitchen stuff. I cook. I actually can cook. People enjoy my cooking, but I had to put a lot of that stuff in storage because even for as much as I use different things, I had too much. I use two types of spatulas that I keep around that are both metal, you know, and I keep like a uh, spatula, the little rubber flexi one that's rather small. And I use it for things like with the peanut butter jar to make sure I get all the peanut butter out because, you know, the dog would be very unhappy if we threw away any peanut butter. So I keep that around. I have a fillet knife for when I fish. I've got some basic camping kitchen knives. Typically, you're only going to need one knife. Now, you can use your pocket knife. You can use a Leatherman. I wouldn't recommend it. They're usually too small. But if you're going to take a knife specifically for cooking or something like that, just pick one. And if you're only going to pick one, don't pick a paring knife. They're usually too small. Pick at least a slicer knife, you know, a five, six-inch knife, maybe a chef's knife if you use that, or the cleaver. Like, I've got one of those Amazon knives. It's like my go-to, and I've got a simple Mora knife that I use as a paring knife. Which you can, I'll put your links on those. You can look at some more knives. They're cheap, easy to get, and there's plenty of good knives out there. You probably have your own, but it doesn't really take a whole lot and a cutting board. That's the thing. Now, you might be doing hiking and stuff, and a cutting board may not be up for your space or weight, and that's fine. You can get plastic ones that are a little lighter weight, but you got some of those ones you can get that are kind of flimsy and roll up. If you want to get one, you just have to place it on a decent surface. The other thing, too, is if you find... If you're going to a campsite and you're car camping, but you don't want to carry a cutting board around, a lot of times you can find chunks of wood or something people have used for splitting. You can do different things like that. Or if you're near a river or lake, you might find a relatively flat rock. You can put a small chunk of wood on or, you know, a simple little cutting board. Like I bought a set of bamboo cutting board once. So one was pretty big. The first one was big. It was like, I don't know, 12 by 16 or something along those lines. And then I use that some because I have another big one I'd use the most. And there was a medium-sized one. It was like, I don't know, size of a piece of paper, eight and a half by 11 maybe. Maybe a little bigger than that. I use that one a lot. And then there was this stupid little one that was like five by six inches, like the dumbest size in the world. And it was completely impractical. I actually use that. I carry that and use it now for a couple of reasons. One is it's actually, because I don't care if it gets damaged, it's a great thing to use as a hot pad because it's made of wood and bamboo. It uh, doesn't take up much space. Obviously, I mean, if I needed it for firewood because I was in a survival situation, I could use that. But the other thing about it is a lot of the stuff I cut because the way I eat is very small already. So, for example, when I slice up an avocado, I do it in my hand. I don't even use a cutting board. But I like tomatoes, and I just go, when I go to Costco, I buy their big thing like cherry tomatoes. That's mostly what I cut on there. Fairly simple. It's big enough to do like an onion on, small potatoes. It meets my needs. So there's plenty of option out there, but I definitely say get one of those. 
Now, before this gets any more boring, let's move on. Let's look at other things. Let's look at hygiene items. Things about hygiene that are tips and tricks that will probably help you and make your life better is sleeping clean. So if you're going to bathe, whether you're taking a full bath, you actually have a shower, you're doing what we call spit bath with water in a bowl, using baby wipes. Maybe all you're doing that night is just changing your clothes. Do it at night before you go to bed, either right before you go to bed or at least when evening activities are done. So you're not, you're not going to go fishing necessarily. You're done cooking food. You're just relaxing for the evening, somewhere between there and falling asleep. You want to have at least a clean change of clothes. You will sleep better, but also you will keep your sleeping gear cleaner. Once your sleeping gear starts to get dirty, it is not fun. And when it gets really dirty, all of a sudden you realize it, you're going to be very unhappy, especially if you don't have a way to clean it. So you want to do that at night, especially any type of bathing. Now, that being said, hygiene items are very simple. It doesn't take a lot, but if you have things that you want, that you always want, take them, take them all. Figure it out, because once you go a few times, you'll figure it out. But you can buy those little plastic squirty tubes. You don't have to go to like REI and do it. Sometimes they have them at Walmart, but little little tubes with lids with squirters on it that you can fill up with your favorite conditioner so you don't have to carry around this two-liter bottle of it. You can just carry around four or five ounces because you know you're going camping for three or four days, and that should be plenty. You can do that. But you definitely want to have what you need. But if you're not able to or in the condition to where you can have full-fledged showers, which a lot of this stuff works that way, you know, you're doing that... 50 miles in a few days on ultralight, there's not showers out there. Now, granted, you can get one of those portable showers, those exist, that are solar, that you can hang in a tree, lightweight to carry with you. You know you're going to be water, you can fill it up. Because if the water's contaminated, not like smelling it's going to make you die, but like, you know, you probably should boil it. You can wash with that without boiling it. You can throw it in there, you can do that. But at a minimum, you want to go for having your feet clean, because you're using your feet the most. Definitely want to do your feet. Definitely want to do your groin and your underarms. Your hands should be getting washed fairly constantly, especially when you're before and after dealing with food that will help keep those clean. And then your face, at least those areas. If you have other areas of your body that break out or get itchy, try to keep those clean as much as possible, but go for those minimums. That's going to also help with the clothing and the undergarments that you may be in a situation you have to wear longer term. Whereas if you're in an RV and you got a shower, who cares? Looking at sleep and stuff, you definitely want to sleep comfortable, but first thing is you want a good pillow. So bring one off your bed. But if you want to buy one, you can. I would tell you this, though. Nothing against marketing and camping products, but I think those travel pillows they sell specifically for camping by companies that make really nice sleeping bags and stuff are stupid and a waste of money. If you really want to do that, you need to find something similar in size, even if it's not as comfortable, just a throw pillow, and try sleeping with it on your bed. And yeah, it could probably be more comfortable, but when you think about the physical size, rolling around, moving around, is that even going to work for you? If it does, go buy one. But typically, a full-size pillow works really well. What those little travel pillows are great for, the people that are living out of a backpack, they probably ain't got the room for the big one. And even then, they probably aren't even carrying pillows, a lot of them. Some of them do the inflatable ones and like them. But some people just roll up their clothes and use that. So you got to figure that out. But definitely, if you're not doing like backpacking, long-term stuff, just get the one off your bed that you know works or buy another one just for camping. When it comes to sleeping gear, you got all kinds of things. We got mats, we got sleeping pads, we got sleeping bags and bivy sacks. People do hammocks, people do tents. Biggest things to look at is the temperatures you're in are not the temperatures in your house unless you're doing summer camping. And then even then you're going to wish you had an air conditioner. 
you're pretty much never in the same temperature as you are in your home and you typically are not going to have a heating source. So if you're new to this, you want to definitely take the stuff you have and go sleep outside in the same similar conditions so you can see how warm you are. Most people don't sleep warm enough. So a couple things. If you're going to get a sleeping pad, you can get one. Now, those foam ones are real cheap, but they don't work really well. They're mainly good for like gravel or situations like that. A lot of little roots, they can help soften that a little bit. We used to use them in the military before they gave us better ones. They have very little RF value as far as heating and insulation, but it's definitely better than sleeping on the ground. Now, if you have to go like that, or let's say you use a cheaper inflatable mat that's fairly thin, it's ultralight, but that's all you have, and you're going to be slightly cooler temperatures. You can get one of those emergency space blankets. Now, I'm not talking about the good ones. I'm talking about the cheap little Mylar ones that look like they make parachute sales in space with. They used to be like a dollar. I think they're probably five or six bucks now. You can lay that down. If you use that, put your mat down first, put the emergency blanket on top of the mat, and then put your sleeping bag on top of the emergency blanket. And that's going to help keep some of the heat in. And it's actually pretty fantastic. I was training with some guys once. Let a dude sleep in my tent. I had this really nice X-Bed mattress from REI that has like a 9.5 RF. Super warm. So it was like winter almost. At least for Arizona. Windy, cold. It was probably in the low 40s to 30s. Which for these guys coming out of Phoenix was extremely cold. Like I had almost no clothes on, half my stuff, half my body laying outside the sleeping bag exposed just so I could find a correct temperature because it was so warm. This guy was bundled up sleeping on a cot, freezing his ass off and didn't tell me. So the next night, all they did was move some of the stuff under the cot to minimize airflow, which helps if you're sleeping on a cot. And then we put the Mylar blanket down. <laughs> we put, a, put his sleeping mat down, put the Mylar blanket, put the sleeping bag. He slept like a baby all night. So they do work. I suggest getting better ones if you're going to hike with them as a true emergency blanket. Thicker ones, you know, got the orange stuff on there. I actually carry one of those in my trailer in case I need it for cold weather, which I have used it. I put it on the floor and partway on the bed so me and the dog can both stay warm. But those things work well. Uh, the other thing, too, is when you're looking at the gear, especially sleeping bags, they have temperature ratings. They'll say, like, 35 degrees or 30 or 20 or zero, minus 10, 50, minus 50, whatever. First, there's no universal standard for that. It's based on what the company says. So if you see company A has 30 degrees, company B has 30 degrees. Well, let me see which one's better. Those aren't necessarily figured out the same way because there's no standards. I know that. Number two, it's a survival rating, meaning 30 degree sleeping bag, and you know the weather is going to be around 35 degrees. You're not going to sleep well. You're going to freeze your ass off. It means that more than likely you'll probably survive the night. I mean, it's not quite that extreme, but let's look at it that way. You'll probably survive. I'm not saying you won't get frostbite. I'm not saying you'll sleep comfortably. So I would drop at least 20 to 25 degrees from the temperatures you know you're going to be in. So I was telling guys in Arizona, like, look, man, we're sleeping most of the year out here. You guys are doing it. You're using tents. You know, it's 40, 50 degrees at night. You know, you get a 30, you'll be good. You want to get a 20? You probably be okay, you know, if you don't have anything under it, but you start getting lower than that, you won't be able to sleep. It's like you can go on the internet and find companies that make great bags are minus 30, minus 40. You go trying to do that when it's 30 degrees outside, you're not going to want to be in it because it's going to be too damn hot. So 20, 25 degrees, kind of figure it out, read some stuff online, but just make sure that you realize it's a survival rating. You're not going to, it's not a comfort rating. One of the things I've said before, I don't know if I did on here, but one of the things I said about water is to understand water usage. Most people don't. 
It does not matter if you're bringing juice and energy drinks and iced coffee and beer and wine. You don't count any of that. We look at water very simply. Water is typically used for consuming, drinking water, which you should be when you're camping, drinking water, even if you're, especially if you're drinking like beers and stuff. We use it for bathing and we may also use it for cooking. So trust me on this when I tell you the way to look at it is one gallon per person per day to cover all those items, regardless whatever items we brought to drink that are in a can or a bottle. One gallon per person per day plus one gallon. So you're going to go out, you're going to leave Friday. So you're going to show up on Friday and you're going to leave Monday. Okay, we count that as four days. And I would bring five gallons of water, right? You're thinking, I wouldn't possibly drink five gallons. Well, doesn't mean you won't use it though because we have bathing and staying clean is important and telling you you're going to have a much happier experience if you bathe and you'll realize real quick how easy it is to use that water up, even if you don't have a shower and how you have to kind of conserve it because you got to wash, you got to rinse. It's like taking a bath. It's like you're rewashing with dirty water and then rinsing. That uses a lot of water. And if you're using a shower, even when the, they got the little spray nozzles, they use a lot of water. And if it's heated and it's not a good heater, you might have to keep the water flow going just to keep it warm. And that uses a lot more water. So three gallons is a lot of water to be washing with, but you could easily use a couple of those five gallons just for cleaning yourself. Then you got to figure, do you have animals and what are they using? Or if you're like me, I primarily only drink water. I do have beer and stuff sometimes, but I don't drink it all that much. And then like iced tea and stuff, I typically make it with the water that I have. I'm also in an RV, so I travel with a, a boatload of water and I have them in three, four different containers, depending on what they're for. And all my water's filtered, but you're going to want to have that water. The other thing too, is when you have campfires, Unless you're in a just downpour where it's two inches of mud around you. When you leave campgrounds and stuff, no matter what you're doing, you should be drowning that fire. Meaning putting water on it, watching it create steam and get all uncomfortable and smelly and actually stirring it up with a stick and turning it into basically mud to ensure that you're not going to burn the fucking forest down. You should be doing that responsibly. That takes a lot of water. So my suggestion is one gallon per person per day. Not to mention, if something happens and you're stuck out there, stuck on the way somewhere, even an extra day, you'll appreciate having that extra water. Because I guarantee you, if you get stuck, which most people do on the way back, you're out of all the fun stuff to drink and all you got left is water, you're going to be a little upset. If you're leaving the campsite with almost nothing, you're doing it wrong. Something else to look at is technology. A few things to know about technology. You're going to want backup batteries probably. It's great if you have the cords and you can plug it in in your car, especially if your car charges it all the time, but you need to consider certain things like, yeah, you know, I always leave this plugged into my car. My car sits outside sometimes for a couple of days. I don't drive it, but it doesn't drain the battery. If that was to happen, it will happen while you're out in the middle of nowhere camping. So you want to make sure of that. Uh, backup batteries, typically you can charge them in your car, but you want to have them charged before you go out there. They're usually little boxes, anywhere from charging your phone one to two times to charge your computer 10 times. At least one of those can be helpful having the plugins to make sure you can do it in your car even if you need to buy an inverter or whatever those can be helpful remember these are just ideas you don't have to do all this the other thing too is to make sure i would like let's say you're driving two hours to go camping and you're hitting the last town or you know a little ways out a decent town where prices aren't too crazy and you know you got to drive in a ways you want to fill up your tank of gas if you had to make a trip right before you go in because if you get stuck in there you want to have gas for heat and to charge these devices. The other thing too is, well, it's great to have cell phones or iPads or whatever, 
you need to presume you won't have signal because even when the bad weather kicks in, you may not have signal. So that's a presumption that it's safe to plan for, which means you may need other technology. So an emergency radio would be great. You can get one like the Sea Crane Skywave, which I just bought myself because my my Texan broke. They're a little pricey for some people, but they're really small, lightweight. But at least with those, you can get the no weather. You can also scan and listen to other stuff. There's tons of types of radios you can get out there. You can get all kinds of stuff like to communicate with. I, unless you absolutely have to do it, I wouldn't be going buying some Chinese crap like Baofeng because they're garbage. They will break on you. By the time you replace it two or three times, you could have bought a decent Yazoo or Kenwood or something. And I'll, you know, put some stuff in the show notes there you can look at. But something like that, where even if you can't talk out or don't know how, you can at least hear. And the other thing with communication is there's visual communication. Something to visually communicate with. Even if it's as simple as you're fishing on a river and somebody's going to be walking down later to where you are, you can have something they can see to where if there's search and rescues involved. So you have all kinds of reflective devices like VF-17 panels. You can get chem lights. You know, you put them on a stick and twirl them or on a string and twirl them and make a big bright colored circle. You can get emergency strobe lights, emergency locator beacons. There's all kinds of stuff you can get. But definitely at least one visual item. The other thing, too, like with flashlights, have good LED flashlights. They will last longer. They're a lot brighter. Get the best ones you can afford. Headlamps are great. They're fairly cheap. But I would have at least, for, I always recommend that, like, say you're doing ultralight stuff. Yeah, get a headlamp. It's a lot easier if you got to go around and stuff. But if you're not hiking, let's say you're doing car camping, headlamps seem practical. But if you're doing car camping or tent camping, they're okay to have, but you're going to be happier having some sort of lantern or big flashlight, especially if you're on a campground where you have to walk to like a bathroom in the middle of the night. Headlamp can be useful, but those bigger flashlights are a lot better, especially when there's animals out and stuff. You can see a lot better. People can see you better. It's just my suggestion what I think is a better way to go. And when it comes to like lanterns, I'll show you the one I bought. My lantern will last, it has high, medium, and low power. If I put it on low power, low power is enough to light up an area enough to see well see well enough to do things, but yet dim enough if you're in a tent, it probably won't wake anybody up. You could read by it. It might be a little bit of a strain. Now it's, again, low power. But with brand new batteries, they said it'll last 60 days. I've tested that more than once. The second time I did it, I'd been using the lamp quite a bit. I hadn't even put brand new batteries in. It still made it two months. So it works rather well. And then there's a smaller version of it because the big one uses like 4D batteries. The smaller one uses 3Ds or 3Cs, maybe 3Ds. And it's like 30 days or something. So I always have the smaller one in my truck and the bigger ones in my camping box. And it's uh, the one I got's white, so it'll like absorb sunlight and it'll kind of glow, which is nice because there's been times where, like when I was in Montana, man, it was so dark when I was in Darby. So dark that time of year. I was the only person out there. So I had the trailer set up and a campfire was like, right behind the trailer was a tree and the table. So the table's like, eight, nine feet. And then you go past that another probably 10, 12 feet was the fire pit. And I had a really good fire going in there, but it was so dark. It wasn't lighting up an area. So I kept walking and like the second time I hit that table, because I had to walk around the edge of it, I kind of hit it with my hip. I was like, damn, that sucks. So I went and grabbed the lantern because it'd been sitting out and I just set it on the edge of the table and all it was doing was glowing. So when I walked, I just kept that to my left. I walked around it to the right, and I never hit the table. So that's what's nice about those things that glow in the dark. Plus, it's you know it's rechargeable. It's not like a chem light you're going to throw away. So they can be nice to have. Another thing to look at are tools. 
two types of tools. One I call camp tools and one I call more like automotive based tools. Like I have some basic automotive tools with me in case I need them. I bought like a set of metric wrenches to use just on the trailer. There, there are other things like that I carry. I classify as tools that are things I have used or would use like hose clamps you should have in your vehicle all the time, but they're useful. I had to deal with them with the water leaks on the trailer. I keep um, these rubber band things. I'll put a link in there, but we used to call them Ranger bands, but they can be used for almost anything. They're really thick bands and those can be great for repairs with hose clamps. I keep some of this uh, flexi stuff, heat shrink stuff in there. If I need to do any electrical work, you know, I have like electrical tape. I have, um, what else do I have? I carry some of that green tape. It's like kind of like the blue tape for painting. Cause sometimes I, I just, it's lightweight, but I, sometimes I repaint, like I got a new set of locks and so I tape part of them off and paint them. So they have a color cause they're all the same locks, but they're not the same key to make sure I put them in the right places. And I know where the keys are. Cause it gets really frustrating when you have like a dozen locks on something and they're all the same type of lock, but there's three or four sets of keys. And then fucking that up that gets frustrating and i don't like that you know i have like uh, some velcro to replace velcro on my tent i carry some camp dry stuff to deal with canvas because remember when i'm doing this i go out for months at a time and then during my months at a time i am camping sometimes in the middle of nowhere for three weeks with no contact no cell service so i have to be able to do a lot of these repairs it's still life i'm choosing to lead and i'm enjoying it very much so i have a lot of these little extra things you know i've got velcro strips and Velcro dots and these things. I Velcro stuff up. I got two-sided tape because when I get new pictures that I laminate, because I have a laminator, I actually leave it with family, but I laminate photos and then put them up with two-sided tape. Or I get stickers I put in my vehicle or like people give me license plates and stuff and I hang them in the vehicle. So I have a bunch of little things like that. But uh, yeah, some basic automotive stuff, you know, extra fuses, fuses for the truck, fuses for the trailer, different sizes, physical sizes, but same sets of fuses. So, you know, I get backup sets of that. And that list goes on and on and on. The best thing to do would be to talk to, if you don't know much about it, talk to somebody who's a mechanic or works on their own cars and be like, hey, what kind of shit should I carry? Or somebody that does what I'm doing and knows a lot can tell you the kind of st- the basic stuff you really need. But if, if you're not sure about that, there are some simple ones, you know, because I have a couple of crescent wrenches, different sizes, and I got some sockets, probably more sockets than I need. And, uh, you know, I got WD 40, I use that. And, some of these other, I can't even think of what they're called, but there's several I duct tape. Like I have, and I have good duct tape too, like gorilla tape or something. Cause it tends to last a lot longer. So anyway, there's, there's tons of these items. I may eventually, I've thought about, I've been asked many times to do videos. I might do videos on some of these little kits and boxes I put together at some point, but it's just to help you out. The other type of tools I call camp tools. These are tools you use around a campsite for camping. So one of the things is like a hammer and or a mallet. This depends on like your tent typically. Now I have stakes for my canvas and they're much bigger stakes. They're thicker. They're like uh, three eighths, half inch thick, maybe three eighths. So a mallet isn't going to work for those, even a dead blow mallet. I need an actual hammer. So I have a hammer. A mallet works on a lot of those lighter, smaller stakes. They're lightweight, um, much lighter than a regular hammer. Depends on the type of stakes, but one of the things you need to consider when you buy that tent for the first time, so you've never done this before, you set it up in the back, think about the weather conditions you could be in and decide if those tent stakes are even going to cut it. A lot of them are basically what I call backyard camping only. If the world falls apart, you can go inside. 
But if there's going to be winds or lots of rain, some of those stakes just don't quite cut it, and that'd be the one thing you might need to upgrade. And then based on the upgrade of your stake, you need to determine whether or not that mallet's going to work because you may need an actual hammer. So it depends on the type of camping you're doing. You're typically not going to find somebody doing backpacking long distance carrying a hammer. They'll probably carry a mallet, if anything. You can also use a rock, but the bigger and thicker the stake, the harder that's going to be. But the other thing to look at is one of the most useful tools. I'm going to put a link down there, too, this I gotta see if I can find the right video about some simple camping stuff to use a hatchet. The hatchet is one of the most versatile tools for camping and enough people don't have them. But what's great about, I'll put the hatchet I have in there by Council Tools that I got from GB2. It's got the uh, backside piece is actually made for a great dead blow hammer. And I actually use that more than my regular hammer, but I do keep the regular hammer around. So it's great for that. And you'll find things like, Say you're going to, if you know what feathering a stick is for starting a fire, it's one thing when it's a real tiny little thing, but most even one inch size sticks or whatever we buy, or maybe two inch square, we'll say piece of wood we get, we're going to start shaving stuff off or maybe feathering it a little bit. A lot of times, if you know how to use the hatchet, right, it's so much easier than a knife, so much less stress on your hands. And saying that, I would carry gloves. Now there's, obviously you're going to have gloves, you know, you want to stay warm. I would have a type of glove for working, for gathering firewood, digging out fire pits, digging drainage ditches, setting up your RV, setting up your, I would have that regardless of the weather just to protect your hands. There's nothing worse than getting little cuts and stuff, especially when you're first camping. Helps keep them cleaner. Like I carry two types of work gloves. I have some really great leather gloves that work for me that I use for yard work when I visit my mom that I also use for a lot of stuff, banging stakes in the ground, whatever, getting dirty type stuff that I got at like tractor supply or something. And I just spent days loading them up over and over and over again with some treatment to help protect them. They're like deer skin or something. The other ones I have, which I don't remember where I got them are these black ones that are good work gloves. They're helpful in wind a little bit. Keep your hands somewhat warm, not super warm. I don't think they're water repellent. What they're great for is I use them, especially when setting up, but more when tearing down my campsite. Because when I leave, typically if I'm like, I'm leaving tomorrow, I think that in the morning and throughout the day, I'll slowly start putting stuff away. So I have minimal work to do, but the minimal work of the morning is I got to put the awnings up. Maybe the walls got to fold them up, drop the top. I got to put stuff inside. I, there's a lot of things I will be doing. And then I'm going to be driving some distance and it's usually a little colder because I might start doing it at five in the morning. So I have these gloves for that, which is helpful because I don't have to take nice, warm, cushy gloves that aren't meant for that and get them all fucked up. Like I've got these great wool gloves that come from like Switzerland that I'll show you. And they're super nice. Oh my God, they're so warm. They're pricey, but man, they're warm. I bought my mom some for Christmas. She loves them. But they are not meant for even something as simple as putting a tent away. You will fuck them up because they're good wool. They'll get snagged. They'll get dirty. They'll get wet. You'll probably wash them wrong. So you want to have that other type of glove. But some of the main stuff I have, so obviously the hatchet, I also have a knife. I'll, I'll show you the knife that I use that is more of a camp knife, bushcraft type knife. I actually don't use it that much, but it is there. I have an axe for splitting wood. A lot of the places I go sometimes, depending on the who's managing the land, which it's not going to be BLM, it's usually like sometimes National Forest Service or it's a state forest. Depends on who it is. A lot of times when they come out there and have to clear out trees, They'll just drop them, and then sometimes they'll take a chainsaw, and they'll actually cut the logs up into usable pieces for firewood. It's just on you to collect them, and then you got to split them. So the axe I bought, I'll show you. I think I bought it at Lowe's. It's not a splitting mall. It's an axe. It's 
definitely not one of the malls, but it does have a slight pop out edge on it to help split the wood easier, which is great. Because if you have to pick between the two, you'd want an axe. This was actually a nice happy medium I found. It works very well for me. And all I use it for is splitting wood into smaller chunks. And I prefer to use that wood than to buy stuff at the store. But I do buy those bundles. And here's why. I have a way overdone massive fire kit because I do it constantly and I'm traveling. I'll have to show you sometime. But I buy those bundles once or twice a year. And what I do is I make kindling out of them of two different sizes and then sometimes some shavings. And then like, uh, where was I in Idaho? I found some massive chunks of fat wood. I showed Luke, like I got so much fucking fat wood right now. I could start probably thousands of fires and I made these massive fire kits and small fire kits for all different reasons. Anyway, I buy that stuff cause it's super dry. It's super lightweight, easy to split. And I can make this massive bag of kindling that can last me for months. And then I just harvest firewood where I'm at. It's typically already laying on the ground. The other thing is some sort of saw. You got to figure out what kind of saw you want. At first, I just had a short little crosscut saw that you use on like a little miter rig. The reason I had that was it was old. It was beat up. It was falling apart anyway. And I was just going to use it until things were over. And I knew that it was going to be almost a year before I seriously started using firewood just because there were so many fire bands and places I was traveling. And so I replaced that with a bow saw, which is what I prefer. You can look that up to see what it is. But there's, you know, buck saws. You can get those, all kinds of saws. But you definitely are going to probably want some type of saw if you're going to be collecting branches and stuff that you need to cut. Those little like Laplanders and small little saws that when they fold out are less than a foot and a half. Typically, you're going to do way more work than you need to to cut stuff. So there's all kinds of different saws you can get. And then a shovel. Now I use the flat shovel, but you can get a flat shovel or a regular spade shovel. And you can actually get ones that are only a couple feet long. And I, the reason I have that is I use it for fires to shape fire, clean them out, bury them and, you know, stir them up when I'm putting them out. And it's uh, very simple for most of the situations I have. Somewhere I have my e-tool from the military if I need a spade to like dig in the ground for drainage. But I just typically carry the flat shovel. Plus that's what came with my trailer. Like in the photos, it's supposed to be a spade shovel, but it gave me the flat one. Then I also, oh yeah, I did get rid of the e-tool because I, I had already like a 22 inch or something little spade shovel. So I got these two little shovels that together weigh as much as a full-size big shovel that meet all my needs because I don't do a lot of digging. Now, I've been asked how long can I last. I've done three weeks more than once. I do two, two, week, two weeks quite a bit, but usually about three weeks, and I, I can go longer. So I carry, let me see, I carry 50 gallons of water pretty much consistently because I have uh, 33 gallons. So this is all filtered water. Really, I'll share the water filter I use. This is not the at-home and kitchen water filter. This is not a live straw. This is made for RVs. It'll do 25,000 gallons for the amount of water it'll filter and its price is a good deal because I carry a, a decent-sized larger hose, 25, 30 feet or something, and then a smaller RV cheap hose. It's like six feet. So I plug in the little, I plug in the big hose, run it over to the RV, plug in the water filter to it, and then out of the water filter using the little hose, I put it in my water tank. So it holds like 33 gallons. Then I have five gallons I always carry as a spare backup water and that about every three or four months, I even though I don't need to, I use it and cycle it out. Then I carry an aquatainer, which is like seven and a half gallons. So that water primarily is what get, gets emptied all the time because I, I use it for a couple of things. One is it's very simple, easy way to get water, very convenient for like filling up water for my dog. So typically if there's a table, it'll sit on the table 
fill her water up under it or whatever. I can fill hers up off an external tap on the trailer too, but I'll use it for that. I use it for washing my hands. It's most of it's used for. And then it's the most easy one to use when I wash my clothes because I use a portable hand crank washing machine, which I'll show you, which works really well because I wash my own clothes when I'm out there and they stay fairly clean. Is it as good as a dish or as a washing machine? No, but it's a lot better than just doing it by hand. Then what I also have is a five gallon igloo that I keep ice water in or iced tea, but I may not carry that with me anymore. I might get rid of it and use a second aqua tanner because I just, I haven't been making or consuming even when the hot weather, I wasn't consuming the amount of iced tea I would home. I was doing more water. So it's uh works well. Like I double and extra installated it, you know, did the spray foam thing and all that and worked pretty well, but I don't know that I'm going to keep using that. We'll see. So going for three weeks. So my, my typical day, like I get up, dog does her thing. If it's real cold. I'll start a fire. Maybe I won't. I'll drink some coffee or some tea and then we'll take, uh, we'll just kind of wander around the campsite a little bit, look around. If it's like a campsite I went to and not one I just made, I'll walk around cause people will be leaving see if they leave anything. Usually it's firewood and I'll collect it. I've found other stuff too. Like I got some walking sticks I gave my mom and somebody left a completely usable, but older brush chisel, whatever thing for getting ice off your car and a few other items I've found. And, uh, you know, we'll do that. She'll get a nice little bit of exercise. I'll come back and then I'll do some sort of work. What I would call work. Uh, I'll either be like doing stuff like for this podcast or the company and writing and reading stuff, or I'll actually be processing firewood kits and stuff or, you know, dealing with fishing stuff, something that would be somewhat work related, but I enjoy it. So I just do it. And later on, somewhere around lunchtime or somewhere between 10 and two, it just depends when I got up, what the weather's like, I'll take her and we'll go on quite a bit of a hike, a mile or two or something, get her some good exercise, come back, she'll sleep. And then usually after that's when I'll make food, my main food to eat. So that entire process can take a couple hours by the time I'm done eating and cleaning up and all that. And then I'll do some cleaning of other types, whatever I need to do. If there's anything around the trailer I need to clean, if it's a cleaning day for the trailer or the truck or, you know, making sure I know where the trash is or whatever, something along those lines. Maybe I'm cleaning a gun, whatever it is. And then I'll bathe, shower. And then unless it was so hot, I was sweating all the time. When I was out and about, I was taking a full flush shower every other day. I wasn't taking it every day, but I was still doing some cleaning on the off days. And I know that with minimal activity, I could make, I could stay a lot longer than three weeks if I wanted to. And even, I'm not out of water when I leave it three weeks. But I would do that. And then when I was done, I'd do something more fun or entertaining uh, to eat at my time where I do a lot of thinking or I go fishing. That'll be the big thing now. Or take another little walk around or, or whatever we do. There might be a place we go to see. Depends on where I'm at close to a town I'll drive in town and look around do some stuff whatever and then as evening comes I'll build a fire uh, typically if I'm going to have a fire and I'll either build it and light it for the night or I'll build it so it's ready to be lit in the morning you know because if there's no going to rain come if we know it's likely not going to rain I'll build the fire at night not worry about trying to build it when I'm cold in the morning I'll just come out and light it bad boy goes up and then um, you know I'll do my evening stuff make some tea Maybe listen to podcasts. I download movies and TV shows like on my iPad. So some nights I'll watch a few of those, but not every night. And then, you know, I'll go to bed and I actually 
go to bed not long after it gets dark and I wake up fairly early. So if it's wintertime, it'll be dark when I wake up. And typically I'm up during daylight most of the year. Longer when the days are shorter. Clothing is very simple. Have, for every day you're going to be out there, have a, a change of undergarments, including socks, plus one. If you're doing backpacking long-term, that's probably not going to be the case. But definitely I would still have, if I was doing, when I did backpacking, and I would go out for a few days. Now, I don't think I very often went up to a week, but I'd go out for a few days and camp like that. I carried two extra sets of undergarments, and that lasted me, plus they were wool, so it worked pretty well. Wool's great. Definitely, and we want lots of socks, so if you're carrying your clothes in a vehicle or whatever, you can afford more. You'll want something warm to wear on your body. Sweatshirt, jacket, whatever. Make sure it's weather appropriate or have an extra rain jacket or something there. Some sort of hat, whether it's a hat to stay warm like a beanie or a hat for rain like my Tilly hat or a hat for like um, too much sun, some sort of hat, some sort of gloves. You know, you'll want something comfortable for your feet. You're not going to be wanting to wear those hiking boots or shoes all the time. So you want some slippers, especially ones that are good for outdoor. Keep your feet warm. They're comfortable. I'll show you like the Omni Heat ones I have for walking around outside or like the Baffin ones I use that I sleep in. They're nice and cushioned. Keep my feet warm. I mean, I just sleep great. You know, stuff like that's fairly easy. You just want to make sure you have enough of it. You don't have to go out long before you I, I run into people all the time. They say, oh, yeah, I camp all the time. They don't know a lot about camping and what they're doing. Like I watched them have a hard time setting up a simple tent. I watched them show up really late and then leave really early and find out it's because they didn't have enough food. They didn't sleep comfortably. Things that are easily correctable, but they don't know who to talk to or they don't want to talk to you. Because you walk up and start offering people unsolicited advice, they just think you're an asshole. I've had people ask and I've helped them out, but most people aren't open to it if you just walk up and do it. But a lot of people have bad times for correctable things. And it's just figuring those things out. But I can tell you, they all come down to two primary things. How they slept and how they ate. Cure those two things first. Work on the other stuff later. You'll have a better camping experience. Because I kind of feel bad for people to come out. Like the last one I saw was this girl had a dog with her. Brand new dog she adopted. That had never been camping and handled it quite well. She was just kind of upset, disappointed in the morning. She was up most of the night. She hadn't camped much. She kept hearing river otters. She didn't know they were river otters. Thought there was creepy animals out there. So she was a little bit scared. She was uncomfortable. She was cold. Dog ate well. She didn't eat well. Because she was going camping, she bought some like survival foods or something because she thought that's what you're supposed to do. And I was like, you have a cooler. I mean, you could just make sandwiches and put them in there. She's like, oh, I didn't know that. So it's little simple things. But food and sleeping are two things you have to do. So you want those to be worked out and then from there move on to other items to make your experience more fun, more comfortable. 